Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, I'm Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have Bradfield, who's an early stage investor, founder group, uh, which has a portfolio of companies like Fitbit, Zynga, Zyngrid and many others. He's co-founded Mobius Venture Capital and prior to that had founded Intensity Ventures. Brad is a co-founder of Techstars. Brad is also a writer and speaker on the topics of venture capital investing and entrepreneurship. He's written a number of books as part of Startup Revolution, uh, a, a series like Startup Life, Two More Faster Startup Opportunities, Venture Deals and writes a blog of uh, Fell Thoughts and Venture Deals. He's just come up with this fourth edition of Venture Deals, which you can find on VentureDeals.com. Uh, Brad holds Bachelor of Science and Master of Science degrees in Management Science from, uh, from MIT. Welcome to the show, Brad. Delighted to be here, Ray. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So how did you get into entrepreneurship and um, how did uh, you get into venture investing? And stuff? Uh, I became interested in, in entrepreneurship well before it was regularly labeled entrepreneurship. Um, I got an Apple II computer uh, when I was 13. I bought it with the money I got from my bar mitzvah. And uh, started programming uh, at a relatively young age um, in the late 1970s, uh, you know, just as a teenager having fun. My father had a patient of his. My dad was a doctor. He had a patient who had been a very successful computer executive who had started a company called Scott Instruments. Uh, with His name was Gene Scott with his son, Brian. And he became one of my very first mentors. And I ended up spending time with him and, and uh, uh, his son, Brian, and saw what they were doing at Scott Instruments uh, in the early 80s. Uh, they were making a, a voice entry system. It's called the VET20 voice entry terminal, where you basically, if you wind the clock back to that point in time, it was similar then to what Siri does today, except yeah. for... Uh, it had a vocabulary of up to 40 words, and each individual person had to train the vocabulary themselves. Um, but I was, I was totally fascinated with both the technology and the business. And when I went to school and college, I started a company uh, while I was there. I also worked uh, in the summers for another startup uh, that was a husband and wife company making software for the oil and gas industry. So at a very young age, Rather than, you know, getting an internship with a big company or, you know, working somewhere, uh, I was always sort of in and around these very small, young technology startups. Uh, and that, that really imprinted on me. I ran a business, uh, the one that I started while I was in school, I ran it uh, for seven years uh, and then sold it in 1993 to a public company. I uh, made a couple million dollars. And of the money that I made, I then turned around and invested almost all of that money between 1994 and 1996 in uh, 40 uh, startups at the beginning of the rise of the commercial Internet. Um, you know, many of those companies failed, but uh, a handful of them were extremely successful and a number of them ended up being good investments. And that was really what started me into this mode of investing first as an angel investor. Uh, and then I kind of woke up randomly one day. I had been doing some investments with a group of people that were affiliated with a company called SoftBank, uh, which is now very well known today, but in the you know mid-90s was not that well known. 
And uh, a group of SoftBank had been funding this group to make investments in the U.S. Uh, uh, SoftBank ran out of money uh, to continue to fund this group. And, and a subset of us, me and, and three of the people that worked at SoftBank, went out and raised a venture capital fund uh, in 1997. So I sort of accidentally and randomly became a VC back then. Well, no, that's that's a very interesting story. You know, I I I read I read uh, in in the book uh, Start of Life, which which I really enjoyed reading. That uh, that you you made sure that you have hundred thousand dollars in your in the bank account, and you were trying to put um, you know a lot of money into into angel investing. Um, and, you know, uh, so I I've also tried to uh, to have that buffer, that sort of a, a sort of an element of safety. Uh, and invest more into into startups. So, um, you know, you know, how many investments should should one look at in order to to get you know as many number of big hits in the portfolio? You you, you look at investing into forty uh, angel investments in in the span of two years. Uh, how much how many investments do you think a angel investor should have in order to get you know a couple of few more hits? Yeah, I think, and I'll underscore, I think the answer is different for an angel investor uh, than for a, for a venture fund. And I think the answer ranges from venture fund size and strategy as well. So answering the question specifically about angel investors, um, I wrote a blog post, uh, uh, I think around 2010, it was on felt.com, uh, where I described, it was, I think it's something like angel investor strategy. Uh, but it, it described my investing strategy and my view of uh, key things that angels needed to understand. One of them is that you have to have a broad enough or a big enough portfolio. So, you know, when I did those 40 investments over, you know, roughly 36 months, it was probably a little bit less than that. So about an investment a month. I was writing the same size check into every company. So I was writing a $25,000 check into each company. And then um, some of the time I would write another $25,000 check into that, into the company. So I was investing somewhere between 25 and $50,000 uh, in each of those companies. Um, part of that strategy is what I described uh, in this blog post as being uh, promiscuous is that you, you have to have a good size portfolio. A mistake that angel investors make over and over again is they try to pick the one or two or three companies that they think are going to be the ones that are successful. When as an angel investor, you're really only able to evaluate a couple of things, right? You're able to evaluate the people and whether or not you want to invest in the founders. And you're probably able to evaluate to some degree the product or the product vision. But you're investing so early in the life of the company uh, that it's extremely hard to be deterministic about where the company's going to end up. And if, if you'd taken those 40 companies and said, here are the 40 companies you're going to invest in before I'd invested in them, rank them in order of which ones are going to be the best returning ones, it, it would have been a random answer. I wouldn't have had any idea. Uh, and, you know, to this date, I've never met somebody who invested as an angel or as an early stage investor in a company who said, oh, that's a piece of crap, but I invested in it anyway. Right. Whenever you invest in something, you think it's going to be really successful. So um, the, the, the simple fact is that you're going to be wrong a bunch. You're going to make mistakes. And so you have to have enough of a portfolio uh, so that the, the, the wins uh, uh, overcome the losses. The well, last comment I'll make on this, I wrote in that same blog post, that you have to know the difference between zero times your money and 100 times your money. Right. 
Uh, as an angel investor, you're not playing for two or three times your money. That's fine. Uh, and, and you should be happy anytime you make an investment and you get you know, greater than or equal to your money back. But you have to know that you're going to get a lot of investments. You're going to make a lot of investments where the outcome is going to be that you get zero, that you lose, you lose your investment. However, if you get 100 times your investment, and let's say you've invested the same amount of money in 40 companies, and you have one company that returns 100 times your investment, all the other companies can return zero, and you've still doubled, doubled all the capital you've invested. So it's really about understanding the difference between these big outliers that generate all of your returns and then, you know, 50%, 75% of the companies that you invest in as an angel, which probably are going to fail. Got it. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, how did your mindset change from angel investing into institutional investing? Uh, it changed on a bunch of fronts. One is I had to get comfortable with investing larger dollar amounts. Um, you know, that was, that was, you know, obvious, but also a, a simple piece. The second is I changed my relationship, uh, with the companies. When I was an angel investor, I was usually very influential, um, because I was one of the very first investors and I had a deep relationship with the founders. Um, but I was influential as, a, you know, a peer or a mentor to the founders and a supporter of the founders as an angel, as a institutional investor. Um, I still carried the same philosophy, but now I was a large shareholder in the company, right? As an angel investor, even you know, if I put a $25,000 check in a company, or, you know, maybe I owned at the time that I made the investment a percent of the company or half a percent of the company, or maybe a percent and a quarter of the company. Um, as a venture investor, you know, even after my first investment, we'd, we'd often own, you know, 15, 20, 25, sometimes 30% of the company. So we're a much larger shareholder. So the dynamics around influence changed. And my view was still very much that I support, was, in, was there in support of the founder and support of the CEO. But I had to evolve my frame of reference so that my view was uh, ultimately, and my view today is that I only really want to make one decision about a company. And that decision is whether or not I support the CEO. Uh, if I support her, my job is to work for her and do everything I know how to do to help her be successful. And if I, for some reason, stop supporting her over time, my job is to work hard to try to support her again. And if for some reason I can't get to that place, then I need to do something about it, which generally means replace the CEO. Um, but uh, that's what I want to do when I don't feel like there's any other options. But I had to change that frame of reference where I realized that as a much larger shareholder in the company, I had a lot more um, both influence and responsibility. The last is when I was an angel investor, I still straddled the line between founder and investor. And a lot of the companies that I was an angel investor and I looked like a co-founder. I was, I was there at the very beginning. I wrote a check at the very beginning. A lot of times, you know, the founders treated me as a founder. In some cases, I was actually called a co-founder. In other cases, I might have been chairman of the company. And, and I still had a very much active role, not necessarily day-to-day -day operationally, but I straddled that line. And what I've learned is that as a venture investor, um, I can't do both. I, I now just focus on my role as an investor. And obviously, as a board member of companies, I have some responsibilities that are governance-related and things like that. But fundamentally, as an investor, I'm trying to concentrate all my energy on being supportive of uh, the CEO and of the leaders of the company. 
um, rather than trying to engage operationally myself. Makes sense. And uh, you, do you think your operating experience has helped uh, the way in you have engaged with founders? Well, I, I would say for sure, for me, my operating experience was helpful um, in, in terms of my view. However, I wouldn't use that to answer the question that I, a different question, which is whether or not I think to be a good investor, you have to have operating experience. I think there are, are lots of examples of great investors who have operating experience and other investors who are great investors who don't. I think there are also examples of terrible investors uh, who had operating experience and successful operating experience and uh, terrible investors who have no operating experience. So I don't think the operating experience per se is the thing that's deterministic as to whether somebody is uh, a good or a bad investor. Um, I think it is something that shapes how they behave and approach things as an investor. And I think it's important for entrepreneurs to know what they're looking for uh, in the characteristics of the investors uh, that they have and know whether they are going, they, the entrepreneur, are going to value the perspectives and the, the frame of reference that comes from being an operator um, or value the, the, the lack of that. Got it. And, and you know, what gets you excited in a, in a startup? Uh, is it the team, the market or idea? Do you, do you allocate points on, you know, what is, what is important or do you, do you give more allocation to, to a team member or uh, is it, uh, you know, you look at all the three parameters and decide, uh, you know, which startup you're going to invest in? No, I don't allocate points and I don't try to do it that way. There was a period of time at, at Mobius, uh, the, the previous firm that was the one that emerged from, from that SoftBank activity where we actually did have a, a point allocation system when we did deal evaluation. I always thought it was nonsensical and with the benefit of hindsight, not only was it uh, nonsensical, but I think it was actually pretty stupid uh, in terms of our own decision-making characteristics and, and ineffective. Um, I would say that uh, I am very focused and my partners at Foundry Group are very focused on a couple of things. Um, the first uh, is that uh, we look for founders who are obsessed about what they're doing. Um, we want founders who were put on this planet to do the thing that they're doing. And we use the word obsession deliberately. Um, the word obsession is uh, the idea of uh, being obsessed about it is very different than being passionate or enthusiastic about it. It's very easy for uh, extroverts to be passionate about what they're doing. And in a lot of cases, introverts don't necessarily come across as passionate. Nice. But that obsession, like I was put on this planet to do this thing is critically important. And that's, that's, that's how we think about people. Um, we have to have an affinity for the product. It doesn't mean that we have to be daily users of it, uh, but, but we have to have an affinity for it. And part of that comes from we, uh, the, the reality that we've invested in lots and lots of companies that we don't really care that much about the product. We don't really have much affinity for it. And what I have learned over time is that when things are going good, it doesn't matter. Everything's going good, awesome, life is great. But when things get difficult, if you don't have an affinity for the product that the company creates, it's very hard to engage emotionally and intellectually at the level that you need to, 
to help the company get through whatever difficult time it has. So that affinity, uh, that affinity is important. And, you know, I'm fortunate in that my, my partners and I all like different things. And so it doesn't mean that everybody has to have the same level of affinity for a particular thing, but it, it's a good lens because it also helps you think about the, the, your perceived relevance of the product. Is this something that could matter or not? And from your frame of reference, do you think it could matter? And if you think it could matter, is it something that you actually care about enough to want to engage with? The third characteristic is that uh, we want founders to want us as an investor as much as we want to be investors. So we view the relationship dynamic as bi-directional. And so instead of viewing our roles as running around the world, trying to find people to, you know, that are going to be the quote, the next great company and trying to get our money into those companies, no matter what, we're actually looking for founders who want to participate with us in a long-term journey that, you know, five, 10, 15 years uh, to build something that hopefully is, uh, is very successful. So that affinity of people, uh, the, the desire of the founders to have us as investors as much as we want to be investors sort of relates also to that notion of we have to be investing in, in things that are doing things, companies that are doing things or building products that we have some affinity for and with founders who are obsessed about what they're doing. Got it. And, and do you think a founder should always be looking at raising funds? Uh, you know, and what tips would you give to founders who want to raise uh, fundraising with the, with the leverage? Well, there's cliches about you should always be fundraising and, uh, you know, uh, part of the job of the founder is to always make sure that, you know, they're in, interested investors in what they're doing. I think many great companies get created with, with little to no uh, financing. So I, I'm a big proponent of raise the least amount of money you need. Uh, until you get to the next level of your business and you get to define the amount of money that you need and you get to define what the next level of your business is. Um, you know, my first company was a business that uh, was bootstrapped. We, we, we literally capitalized the business with $10 uh, and we had 10 shares of stock and built you know, a successful business that had a nice outcome without ever raising any additional capital. Um, you know, some extremely valuable companies uh, of the current generation of successful companies uh, have been built with very small amounts of financing. One of the ones that, that we were not an investor in, but that some of our friends were investors in. Uh, and subsequently, because we're investors in some other funds, we, we were indirectly investors in was a company called Trade Desk, which, you know, I don't know the total capital they raised prior to going public, but I have in my head that it was sub $10 million. So um, I I think it's, uh, I, I think it's something that's important for the founders and for the leadership of a company to think about what resources they really need. Um, and then to raise capital associated with uh, the resources they need, and then to be thoughtful long-term about the capital structure they have for their business, which does not necessarily support the, the simple notion that a founder should always be fundraising. Got it, got it. And, and are there any, any sectors that you're interested in or, or, or do you avoid uh, any sectors uh, to invest in? Well, Foundry Group has a very specific strategy around a set of themes that we defined when we started uh, Foundry. Those themes have evolved some over time, but they haven't changed radically. And, you know, if people are interested, I'd encourage them to go take a look at foundrygroup.com slash themes. Uh, rather than, than chew up podcast time going through them one by one. 
Um, but that's our lens. If something's, if something's outside one of the themes that we think we know a lot about and are good investors in, even if it's an amazing entrepreneur, um, we're not the right fit for it. If it's something within our themes where we feel like we have a lot of domain knowledge and a lot of understanding of how to build a business there, that's, that's where we, we, uh, we invest. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, Brad, uh, Start of Life was one of the uh, one of the most interesting books that I read last year. And, uh, you know, in this book, you talk about 97% rule. Uh, so, you know, uh, can you talk a little more about what is that rule that you designed with your wife? Sure. Uh, start of Life was a fun book to write because uh, uh, I wrote it with my wife, Amy Batchelor. Um, and for anybody that has a, a life partner, now, figuring out a project of any sort with your partner can sometimes be challenging. Writing a book just in and of itself is is hard. Figuring out how to navigate the the co-author pro- process can often be challenging, and then do it when you're actually married. It's even more challenging. So, it was a good experience for us to work through how uh, how to actually write the book, um, and it's one that we're both we're both proud of having done. The 90% rule, which we, or 97% rule, which we talked about the book, came from the idea that uh, in our relationship, um, I don't have a lot of strong uh, opinions about specific things or, or functional needs around things. Um, I, I tend to be uh, reasonably abstract. I'm, I'm not very materialistic. I have, I have very poor eyesight. Uh, even even with glasses. And so, you know, the physical world has never been, you know, stuff and things and how things look and where they are in the house and what color they are. And, you know, th- that sort of stuff doesn't tend to matter to me much. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff in terms of uh, opinions about specific things that I don't really have strong opinions about. Uh, and a lot of the times it's in joint decision-making about where to go or what to do or where to eat or who to be with. Um, occasionally I'll have an opinion, but most of the time I don't um, because I just like to be with Amy. I like to be doing stuff with her. And that's, uh, that, that's how I'm prioritizing my energy rather than uh, on a specific, uh, specific thing. However, um, there are a few things that I care about a lot and really want a lot, whether they're for physical comfort or the intellectual stimulation or whatever. Like these are things that are important to me. And in our relationship pretty early on, we came up with uh, two things. One is the 97% rule, which is that uh, 90% of the time, Amy gets her way. She gets what she wants. But 3% of the time, if I express a really strong opinion about what I want, um, you know, unless she has a strong objection to it, which occasionally she does, and then we talk about it and figure something else out. Um, uh, those 3%, I, I uh, delineate clearly, and then, then I get them. Interestingly, a corollary to that rule is something we call the, the magic eight ball rule, which is, or the magic eight ball answer, which is a lot of times Amy asks me a question about something um, that I don't care anything about. You know, do you like this? piece of furniture? Do you want to go out to dinner at this place? Do you want to, you know, go on a trip to here? Do you want to see these friends? You know, and it's not all materialistic. It's like on whatever those dimensions are. And the answer, I don't care, is not a good answer. (laughs) Um, the the, 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 The thing we've come up with is the magic eight ball answer, which for those of you that remember the magic eight ball was that eight ball that had a little window on the front, some 
some uh, liquid in the thing in the middle of it and you shook it up and it gave you an answer. Yes, no, maybe signs point to yes, a bunch of different clever cute things. And we combine that with something else we call golden retriever eyes. We have two big golden retrievers and we, we love our dogs. And the dogs have a certain way of looking at you when you're holding food or holding a treat, like just their a hundred percent of their attention is on you in that moment because all they, all they really want is that food, but they know that you're the one that's going to give it to them. And so uh, for the, for the 97%, uh, I answer with a magic eight ball answer, but with golden retriever eyes. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I engage with Amy. I look at her, you know, do you like the way I look in this dress? You know, if I don't, you know, if I don't like it or if I do like it, the answer usually is, you know, sure. Or it's not so you like how I look in this dress. Do you like the red one or the blue one? It's usually a red or the blue. The answer is usually I don't care. Right. But I look her in the eyes and I say, the blue one's the best. And eh, 50% of the time she'd choose the red one. Right. Because <laughs> she didn't actually care about what my answer is. And she knows that I don't care whether she wears the red or the blue one. But she wants the engagement. It's about the social engagement. It's not about the specific opinion or the specific answer. So I, I characterize that not as a way everybody should interact with their partner. But if you scale back from it, these are things that Amy and I learned about each other through developing and working on and building our relationship. And then coming up with a language and a, and a way of talking and relating to each other that had a lot of positive feedback loops in it versus I think what is so difficult for many people, especially when they're busy or they're stressed or they get lots of things going on is that they don't know how to nourish each other through their small interactions. And as a result of that uh, conflict builds and builds and builds, and then you have a big interaction that's really unpleasant and uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, I, I try to apply that strategy from last time. It has really improved my relationship with my spouse. So, um, so, so that is that. And, you, you know, you recently come out with this new book, uh, Venture Deals, which is, a, which is into the, into, sorry, uh, this is the fourth edition of the book. Uh, so, you know, what is the book about and, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what is different in this edition from the, from the last editions? Sure. Uh, Venture Deals uh, is uh, a book. The subtitle is uh, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. Uh, It's aimed at entrepreneurs, but many lawyers and venture capitalists and people interested in entrepreneurship also read it. Um, It started out as a way to help people understand how venture deals or venture capital deals are done how seed rounds and series A and other type of early stage equity investments are done. As we've done each edition over the years, we've added a lot of additional material to it. So in one of the early editions, we added uh, information about how venture capital firms work. We have a section on negotiation. Uh, We have a section on crowdfunding. Uh, And in the fourth edition, which just came out, we added uh, a couple of new chapters. We added a chapter on uh, how to to hire and work with an investment banker uh, when you're selling your company. We also have a chapter on on the letter of intent or the document you sign sort of when you've agreed on what kind of a deal you're going to do to sell your company. Um, We also added an extensive chapter on venture debt. 
which we did with uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, which is a, a, a very large uh, a bank debt firm that does, uh, you know, really pioneered a lot of the concepts around venture lending and venture debt. And we talked to in detail how venture debt works. We also worked with, uh, we had a number of sections in the earlier editions on, on legal issues surrounding startups and companies, but we worked with a, a law firm called Cooley that we're also close with and added in a number of different uh, uh, issues around or uh, sections around legal issues uh, that we see commonly that come up early and throughout the life of companies. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll put, put the link of, uh, of the book in the, in the show notes. Uh, so let's quickly do the top three. What's your favorite business book? So my favorite business book of all times uh, is a book by Robert Piercig called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And uh, it's not classified as a business book. I think if you go to a bookstore, you go online, it's typically in the philosophy section. Uh, and I read, I read it, uh, when I was, I first read it when I was in high school and it's, it's really a philosophical treatise on a number of different issues. And there's an element of that treatise, which is around product development and quality and how to think about that. But there's also this incredibly deep self-reflection about one's own view of themselves in the context of what they do against the backdrop of this notion and idea around quality, which has this fascinating arc, which includes the protagonist slowly descending into madness. And what you get from that, you say, well, how's that a business book? <laughs> um, I, think, I think that what you get from that when you read it is it forces you to think about or forced me uh, as, and I go back and reread it every four or five years to think about the entrepreneur's journey and the endless challenges of the entrepreneur's journey and how the entrepreneur is constantly doing things that are counter to the backdrop of the norms, uh, norms and conventional wisdoms and how challenging that is not just to do, but also for one's own uh, sanity and mental health over a long period of time. Yeah, uh, I, I think this is the book which uh, I need to reread again. It's been quite a while that I've read it. Uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started uh, investing, uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on or anything you would have done differently? When, when I started investing and did those first 40 uh, angel investments, uh, when I reflect on it now, I think I would have said yes more frequently. Um, even though I did a lot of investments, um, uh, there were a number of investments that uh, I didn't do for, in hindsight, no particularly good reasons, uh, several of which were extraordinarily successful. Um, and so in some ways, you know, I, I didn't really, when I was starting investing, I didn't really have a filter. I didn't know how to evaluate things. And so whatever filter I was using was almost by definition wrong. And so I would have probably loosened the filter more. Interesting. And uh, do you have a uh, favorite online tool, for example, Gmail Slack? Well, uh, my favorite tool is uh, that I 
that I use is probably Todoist um, uh, for a variety of reasons. I think it's a, a delightful application. Um, uh, you know, the common tools that I use in my day-to-day -day life, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a Gmail user, although I've been using Superhuman as the user interface for quite some time, and I, and I, I like it a lot. And, uh, I think that they've done a nice job there. I'm a heavy, uh, heavy Zoom and video conferencing user. Um, uh, I, I, we use Slack some, but I, I don't find Slack to be uh, uh, particularly compelling for the type of organization that we are. And uh, I, I don't find it very useful as a cross-organization tool. So I think there's cases where it's very useful, but I think there's a lot of cases where it gets used where it's not very useful at all. So I, I'd say uh, of the of the ones that may not be the most sort of front and center, I would put Todoist at the top of the list for me. Got it. And uh, uh, what are the best way people can reach out to you and uh, where can they buy adventure deals? So it's very easy to find me. I'm Brad at Feld, F-E-L-D.com, uh, okay. also at Feld on Twitter. Uh, although I generally don't engage much on Twitter, so if there's something somebody wanted to interact with me around, just send an email to me. Start with the punchline because I get a lot of emails and I try to respond to them, but just you know, tell me why you're writing and what you're looking for. Um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of buying venture deals, um, uh, whatever the right cliche is, uh, it's available online wherever books are sold. Um, uh, I'll, uh, probably obviously Amazon and Barnes and Noble are two uh, easy places to get it online. Uh, if you go to the VentureDeals.com website, uh, there's links to you know a handful of other uh, online sources uh, that it's available at. Right, Brad. Uh, you've been one of my favorite bloggers when it comes to venture investing. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show, and uh, I really appreciate speaking to you. It's been my delight. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.